I hope you made your way in the Bibles to Exodus chapter 7 as we continue our series on Sunday morning titled 10. And we are inevitably working our way to the Ten Commandments, currently looking at the story that brought us to the point of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And this morning we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 7 and 8 in a message entitled Confrontation. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 7 together. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that, the, that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his, of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded them. So they did. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. It is now that moment in our story. The moment of confrontation. The moment where Moses will now confront Pharaoh on behalf of God and demand that the children of Israel be released from their captivity. And God told Moses from the beginning that he would, that is, Pharaoh would resist this command. And therefore, requiring God to place his hand upon Egypt through mighty signs, through mighty wonders, allowing for the display of his power to be witnessed, not only by the Egyptians, but also by the children of Israel. And God was preparing the scenario. This was not a confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. It was a confrontation between God and Pharaoh. And Pharaoh stood in the supposed authority of the pagan gods of Egypt. And as he stood there in that supposed authority, he resisted this God of the slaves. Who is he that I should obey him? I do not know this God, Pharaoh stated very clearly and openly. But now was the time. Moses at this point, at the end of chapter 6, we discover that he is in a place of, that he feels completely inadequate for the task. He says, I am a man of uncircumcised lips, meaning I don't know what to say, I don't know when to say it, and I don't know how to say it. And therefore Aaron is now his spokesman. And God promises Moses that I am going to work through you. It is going to be me who will commission this exodus. It will be me who will show these signs and wonders. It will be me who confronts Pharaoh. 
A confrontation is a face-to-face meeting or encounter, especially a challenging or a hostile one. It is a conflict between ideas or people. A conflict between ideas, beliefs, or opinions, or between the people who hold them. That was a, that's what a confrontation is. And as we see these ten judgments upon, Israel, uh, upon Egypt being rendered, know that they are judgments. Many of your Bibles carry them as plagues, which simply means blows or to be struck by. Not wrong, but understand that they were judgments pronounced by God towards the gods of Israel. I'm sorry, Egypt. And as a result, we must once again discover that original intent of these judgments. Many over the years have tried to dismiss these miracles as mere natural occurrences. Uh, The water of the Nile River just happened to turn to blood. The uh, uh, frogs from the Nile River just happened to come forth. The lice and the flies, etc., Even if they were natural occurrences, I think it's amazing that it happened right when Moses said it was going to happen. That's pretty significant timing. These were not natural occurrences. They were supernatural occurrences. And until we understand that, we will not understand what the intent of these judgments really mean. For this was a confrontation not only between God and Pharaoh, but the authority in which Pharaoh stood. For the Egyptians worshipped a plethora of pagan gods. And as a result, it was these gods who supposedly gave Pharaoh his authority. It was this God, these gods that supposedly gave Pharaoh his power. It is this, these gods that God is specifically targeting and confronting through these judgments, showing His superiority in every way possible. We must once again realize this original intent, and therefore we must then hold to that intent to understand what is actually happening within this confrontation. For Pharaoh was a god to the people of Egypt. The people of Egypt fully believed that it was the deities of Egypt that brought Pharaoh to power. That allowed him to be Pharaoh. As one historian, archaeologist, and theologian, Henry Frankfurt wrote, he said this, The Egyptians believed that in the person of Pharaoh a superhuman being had taken charge of the affairs of man. And this great blessing, which ensured the well-being of the nation, was not due to fortunate accident, but had been foreseen in a divine plan. The monarchy then was old as the world, for the Creator Himself had assumed kingly office on the day of creation. Pharaoh was His descendant and His successor." So understand how the Egyptian people looked at Pharaoh as a successor to the king that was originally appointed on day one at the moment of creation. 
claiming creation of all things. Now he is being confronted. And if we were to see it from our vantage point, if we were to look upon this confrontation, we would see this. We would see Pharaoh with all of the weight and the glory and the military might of Egypt behind him. And then we would see two Bedouins from a race of slaves there in Egypt confronting Pharaoh and demanding that their people be let go. On the surface, it would appear to be a joke if it wasn't for God being behind Moses and leading Moses to this point. God is now going to show that He is superior to each and every one of these so-called pagan gods there in Egypt. He's going to bring them to a point of reducing them to nothing. To bring them to a point of mere irrelevance in the grand scheme of things. And in each step of the way, when God begins to confront Pharaoh's authority, Pharaoh will continue to harden his heart against God, against Moses, against the demand. And God will harden the heart of Pharaoh as the judgments continue. This confrontation began the moment in chapter 5 that Moses came to Pharaoh and demanded that the children of Israel be released, saying, Thus says the Lord. In verse 10 of chapter 5, Pharaoh then in his arrogance and in his pride and in his uh, uh, so-called authority stood up against this God using the same phrase. He says, Thus says Pharaoh, you shall have no straw to make bricks. It was a confrontation that began in two words. Thus says, the arrogance of man pitted against the glory and the sovereignty of God. And God fully knowing that He was going to resist and harden His heart is a warning that you and I should take very seriously today. And we will watch how this hardening of this heart develops as we go through each and every one of these judgments and why it occurred and then summing it up after our session next time together. But one commentator wrote up until this point, he said, up to this point in their confrontation with Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron had simply delivered God's ultimatum. Now the time had come for them to reveal God's power and perform the miraculous signs that proved that they were truly sent by God. This is undoubtedly my favorite part of the story. It's a close runner-up to the crossing of the Red Sea. Every time we used to watch the old movie, The Ten Commandments, I could not wait until we got to this point, and Charlton Heston is taking on Pharaoh. Even when the Prince of Egypt was released, Steven Spielberg's animated adaptation of the book of Exodus, it was still very powerful when God was challenging Pharaoh through these plagues, through these judgments. It is a moment of uh, confrontation that we see God's authority established, not only in the eyes of the Egyptians, but in the eyes of God's people. 
For many scholars believe that many of the Israelites, while there, those 400 years, had moved to embrace many of the Egyptians' gods and therefore moved away from holding on to the promises of Jehovah. And so our confrontation begins with the miraculous rod that Aaron throws before Pharaoh. And it turns into a serpent. In verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh, and they did so just as the Lord commanded, and Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up the rods, their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Tradition tells us that it was a cobra in which the rod appeared as. The cobra in Egypt was a representation, a symbol of immortality. In fact, the headdress that Pharaoh would wear in between his eyes, his forehead, was a small cobra. It was to constantly remind him that as Pharaoh, he was immortal and therefore he could be fearless. Nothing could take life away from him. If he went into battle, he could be reminded of that, by that cobra that he was superior and immortal to anyone that he may face according to his gods. When this rod was thrown down, the same exercise that was displayed earlier to validate the authority of Moses and Aaron before the children of Israel, now he is being, uh, it is being used to show the authority of God before Pharaoh. And as the cobra was laid down, the magicians did something that Aaron and Moses didn't suspect or anticipate. They counterfeited the miracle. They were able to perform the same thing. However, though, the rod of Aaron swallowed the rods of the magicians. Showing again the superiority. Showing, possibly, that immortality did not lay in the hands of pagan gods, but in the hand of the one true God, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of the people of Israel. And Pharaoh's heart grew harder. And he refused the demand to let the people go. After this, these plagues or judgments began, and it began with the water turning into blood, verse 14. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned into a serpent you shall take in your hand. You shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. 
but indeed until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river and with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord said to, uh, spoke to Moses and said to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, over all the pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the water that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters uh, that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water from, of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the rivers. Each morning, Pharaoh would come to the river Nile to, to honor it, to understand that it is the river Nile to, that gave Egypt much of its life source, agriculturally, hydration, etc., They would come out and worship the river Nile itself, which they believed in and of itself. The river itself was a deity. And and, uh, Pharaoh would come out and worship this deity, exonerate it, exalt it. There was also the god Hapi, H-A-P-I, which was the god of the flooding of the river Nile that they would acknowledge and appease so the river would not flood and destroy that which they had built, but also that they would be spared from any harm that it may cause. Even the source of the Nile River was given a deity. It was Kanum, where the source of the Nile River, therefore, was a god to them also. And all of these were worshipped at this moment that Pharaoh came out and acknowledged their authority and their blessing onto the Egyptian people. And during this moment of worship, God said to Moses, meet them there. Take the staff that has been turned into a serpent and place it into the water and it shall be turned to blood. And he did so. And the fish died. And it stank, and the people could not drink of it. Then he went to the other waterways and turned all of them into blood, including the water that had been drawn for the day that had been found in buckets and in pitchers. All water was turned to blood everywhere there in Egypt. As God confronted these pagan so-called gods head on in what he had done, but the magicians once again duplicated this miracle. And Pharaoh's heart continued to grow hard, just as God had said. This led to the second judgment. 
And that is of frogs, chapter 8, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go. It's starting to become awfully familiar what God is wanting. That they may serve me. But if you refuse, let them go. Behold, if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into your houses of your servants, on your people, in your ovens, and in your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all of your servants. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and cause the frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up the frogs on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat or pray the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let your people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, according to the honor of saying, when I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from you and from your houses, that they may remain in the rivers only. So he said, tomorrow. And he, that is Moses, said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And all the frogs shall depart from you. In your houses, from your servants and from your people, they shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. And so the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, out of the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. The frog was a representation of Heket, which was the goddess of the river Nile, the wife of Kanum, the source of the river Nile. Again, God specifically targeting gods that were very familiar to the people of Egypt so they may know that he is superior to whatever uh, abilities they have. And once again, this time, frogs were covering the entire area, and we have it in such gr great detail. People's houses were full of frogs. People's bedrooms, including their bed, was full of frogs. They went to their ovens. They went to their cabinets. They went everywhere full of frogs. Everywhere they looked, frogs were abounding. And once again, for a third time, the magicians of Egypt were able to do the exact same thing. And Pharaoh once again hardened his heart, but only after deceiving Moses. He deceived Moses by saying, I will let your people go. Go and entreat or pray unto the Lord that he may take the frogs. And as soon as Moses uh, prayed unto God, the frogs were, were taken away, had retreated. They were heaped up in big pile, frog piles everywhere there in Egypt. 
smelling up the whole... Now, the river stinks, the land stinks. It's not a great place to be. Property value sinking fast. Okay? That being said, even the psalmist commented, commented on the number of frogs. Their land abound with frogs, 105 verse 30. Even the chambers of their kings. Everywhere they looked, there were frogs. But this time, as soon as the relief had occurred, Pharaoh once again hardened his heart and would not allow the people to go. And so the judgments continued. Verse 16, the third, that is, of lice. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod. Strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth. And it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked their enchantments or secret arts to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard. He did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. I don't know about you, but at this point of the story, this is when my family would have given up if they were Egyptian. Just the other day, I'm sitting in my room working on my computer, and I hear this screech, this yell that I had never heard or thought was possible by any one individual. It was my daughter hanging from the ceiling because she found two centipedes in her bed. Now, thinking that the whole entire place is covered with lice, this is it. Time out. We're done. We're over. Now, there is some debate. Is this lice? Is it gnats? Is it flying mosquitoes? I don't care. They're all bad. They're all something that I would want to avoid. Have you ever been out on a beautiful evening walk? You're walking down a bike trail, or you're walking along the side of a lake or a river, and all of a sudden you hit a swarm of gnats? And you're just choking on them. You're spitting them out. Your little romantic walk turned into a nightmare. And, you know, because you're both like, get these things off of me. Everything was covered. God created life out of the dust of the earth as he had done earlier. And the magicians could not duplicate it. Could not counterfeit it. The limits of their abilities, of their secret arts, had now been found. And this is something they could not do. And they even cry out to Pharaoh, these magicians, and say, this is the finger of God. We cannot resist this. We cannot move against this. And even when they were able to counterfeit the things of God, did you notice that they were never able to nullify the things of God? It wasn't that they threw down their rods, they became serpents, and that serpent overwhelmed the rod of Aaron. That didn't happen. They were able to create blood out of the water, but they weren't able to take the blood back to water. They weren't able to uh, uh, take or nullify that which God was doing. They brought forth more frogs. They only compounded the problem. They didn't resolve the problem. They only added to what God was doing. I bring that to your attention because I believe that's the focal point of part of what God wants us to learn from these experiences. As He's confronting these individuals, 
The word enchantment there in the New King James means secrets, arts. There's something of darkness working behind the scenes, giving this authority and power unto Pharaoh, unto these magicians, to allow them to do such things. There's something behind the curtain, and it isn't the wizard. And in these demonic acts, God is showing Himself strong each and every time. And each and every time, the heart of Pharaoh continues to grow harder and harder. Verse 20, If the lice or gnats or mosquitoes weren't enough, now we have flies. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water, as he did earlier. Then say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go before, uh, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants, on your people in your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians uh, shall be full of swarms of flies and also on the ground which they stand. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, That's the land where the children of Israel lived, in which my people dwell, so that no swarm of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people tomorrow. This sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh into his servants' houses, and into the land of Egypt. And the land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then they will not, uh, will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He will command us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat or pray the Lord, and the swarms of flies, that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully any more in the light, uh, and letting the people go to sacrifice to their Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses and remove the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people, and not one remained. Verse 32, <clears throat> But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. In the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, the word that is used for fly here is most likely kanumia, uh, which means a horsefly or a dogfly, one of those annoying flies that you experience on beaches that seem to target your ankles. I don't know what's so attractive about our ankles, but the ones that bite, they're annoying. 
there's beautiful beaches that are just swarming with these flies, and you can't even enjoy the beach because of these flies. I can't imagine the entire uh, nation of Egypt being ravished by these flies except for the area of Goshen. God is trying to get their attention. God is trying to show that He is superior to any of the pagan gods that they might hold to and that He is completely superior to Pharaoh. Pharaoh still at this point is hardening. He is resisting. He is stubborn in his pursuits as God is hardening his heart in conjunction with Pharaoh hardening his own heart towards God's command. Throughout all of this, this confrontation continues today in a much different light. The effect of each of these judgments were meant to be a display of superiority of the forces of darkness behind Pharaoh. It was to show that our God is supreme and is able to come overcome any of the enchantments, secret arts, or dark magic that lies behind these gods. In fact, Exodus 12.12 tells us that he specifically targeted the gods of Egypt to judge them in this manner. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, speaking of the Passover, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. He is bringing every pagan god to nothing. Again, they could not control what God was doing. They could counterfeit it. They could seem to, they could make it appear that they had certain abilities and powers, which they did, but they were not able to nullify that which God is doing. And understand that the New Testament has a lot to say about this. There are a lot of warnings throughout the New Testament telling us to beware of falsehood. That there will be false teachers in the land in the last days. And those false teachers will bring forth false teaching. They will bring uh, about false religious leaders. For even Satan himself, Paul warns us, is able to transform himself into an angel of light. This confrontation that began at this moment with the pagan gods that lied behind Pharaoh and the Egyptian magicians are continuing to this day. But today we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. And the weapons that we have are not carnal, but are mighty through God for the tearing down of strongholds. In fact, Paul the Apostle warns us in 2 Timothy 3 verses 1-9 through that in the last days perilous times will come. There will be a form of religiosity. There will be a form of piety before God. Meaning that they will look quote-unquote religious but have no heart for God, have no love for God, and have no desire to follow God. But they'll look good. They'll look religious. And it's interesting that these people and the false teachers who uh, produce these people, he likens them to the priests that, the magicians I should say, that counted and resisted Moses. These magicians that we just read about Paul is likening to the false teachers and those, the fruit of the false teachers that would come and oppose us as we try to further Christianity in this fallen world. 
I don't know about you, but I'm starting to discover that it's not only the world in which I contend with, it's those who claim Christianity, but who are not Christians. It's those who say that the Bible is fallible. It's those who say that Jesus isn't God. It's those who come and say that intellectualism can explain away all that God has done supernaturally. And they say, look, we are Christians too. We love Jesus and we can tolerate the redefinition of marriage and we can, and we can move in these directions and, and they're perfectly fine with these things. And yet the Bible says that they are not right with God. That's where the resistance is really starting to form. Where we are being targeted and we are being shown as closed-minded and we are shown as a, a, a lack of progression in our Christian thinking. What they call lack of progression in the Christian thinking, I look at them and I just say, all you've done is take your Christian thinking and compromise it with that of the world. Let us understand that Paul made it abundantly clear in verses 8 and 9 that these who resist us, these false teachers, these false converts, these individuals would be problematic. And I find that to be the case. When we have our radio show going over the air, when we make comments that we hold to a literal creation, and when we make comments that we believe that uh, Christ is sufficient for our salvation, and we make comments such as we believe that the Bible is infallible, the letters I get are not from non-believers. They are from Christians who want to refute these things. How can you say the Bible is infallible? It was written by man. I've been a Christian for 20 years, and I've discovered that, he said in his letter. This is the problem. But I have to understand that Paul also goes on to tell us that it's not flesh and blood that we wrestle against. For our confrontation is found in these words, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the, against the wilds of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Take up uh, the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. That's, our, that's our, the ex- exhortation. The confrontation is still continuing. Paul knew it wasn't the people, it's what's behind them. And so we need to be loving, we need to be uh, corrective, we need to show them the Word, we need to be instructive, knowing that the blindness that is occurring is the ruler of this world. He is our adversary. He is our enemy. God knew that that's what He needed to dismantle in the life of Pharaoh. And as Pharaoh continued to harden his heart, Pharaoh began to realize that the powers, the deities that supposedly gave him his authority are coming to nothing. They're becoming irrelevant. We cannot hold back this tidal wave who we call Jehovah moving across the land of Egypt. For today our confrontation not only contends with those forces, but the ideologies that those forces create in our culture today. Let me read this to you. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3-6. through six. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. 
Those strongholds are then identified in verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We as Christians are meant to challenge worldly ideologies that would take us away from God. We are, we are meant through apologetic means to begin to dismantle arguments that would seem to lead individuals away from a living God. The reason that our nation is in the place that it is today and the reason that they have been so successful at sterilizing our nation from all things that of God, from the Ten Commandments to crosses, etc., is because the church did not stand up and say, wait a minute, hold on, wait one second challenging the ideologies. Now you may say that this is a futile, a futile endeavor. Do you know that across some of the most prestigious schools in the United States of America, God is raising up men to go in there, men and women, godly men and women, to go into these universities and to speak on the behalf of God to the students of these universities. And it's incredible when you see apologetics just flow. And as they are making their cases for God, just recently I was listening to Dr. Ravi Zachariah as he stood there at, I believe it was Dartmouth, and he gave an incredible explanation for the evidences of God to students who may not ever hear that otherwise, challenging the ideologies that they would be given in their higher education that would move them away from God, challenging them in this way. Now you may say, I'll never be a Ravi Zachariah. Well, neither will I. But I can give answers to questions to people who ask me answers for the hope that lies within me. I can be ready in season and out of season to give a defense to the faith in which I hold to. We must be prepared to challenge these ideologies that would supposedly uh, triumph the information that God says in His Word. And to show them how illogical many of their presupposed suppositions actually are. One of the easiest positions to deconstruct is atheism. And yet it seems like we're unwilling to engage in that arena. The illogical conclusions that atheists, atheists come to that would indicate that there is a God they embrace as a, uh, as a um, reason not to believe that God exists. And yet we do not challenge these things. The confrontation continues. But Paul recognized that it was not against flesh and blood. It was against the ruler of this world, the principalities and the powers that lie behind the veil between the physical and the spiritual worlds. But these spirituals are coming out in ideologies that are moving our nation, moving our people, and destroying lives. And Paul says, I want to challenge those things with the Word of God. I want to stand. And I want to be used by God and the power of the Holy Spirit to say, enough's enough. And that's exactly what Moses demonstrated for us. He was challenging the pagan gods of that time, the ideologies that they created through the superiority and the power of the hand of God. 
judging Pharaoh, allowing Pharaoh to be an object lesson, not only to the wrath, but to the grace of God. I close with these words this morning. God is gracious and long-suffering, but there comes a time when He will no longer tolerate the disobedience and the arrogance of defiant sinners. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. To the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. Psalms 18, 25, and 26. If we were to walk contrary to Him, He will walk contrary to us. Leviticus 26, 23, and 24. God shows Himself to each individual according to His character, wrote Spurgeon. And no individual in Scripture illustrates this truth better than the king of Egypt. For months, Moses and Aaron had dealt with Pharaoh, but the king was unwilling to obey God's command or even acknowledge God's authority. The water, courses in, the water courses in Egypt had been turned into blood. Slimy frogs have invaded the land. Swarms of pesky gnats had irritated the people. Flies had covered the land, but Pharaoh had refused to bend. So what did God do? He declared all-out war on both the ruler of Egypt and the God of Egypt. And that's what we'll see as we conclude these plagues next Sunday together as God continues to pour out His judgment on Egypt, confronting the gods of Egypt, showing Himself strong to them. And as Pharaoh resists and his heart grows harder, as we look at the first nine judgments, they act as a unit together. It's the Passover. It is that last tenth one that we will spend more time on because it is so significant as a, a tenant of our Christian faith, understanding what the Passover means and what was being displayed at that time. Jude tells us that we must contend for the faith. We must contend. We are going to be challenged by friends, family, etc., We are to respond to that challenge in love, knowing what we believe and why we believe it. Knowing that, therefore, we can give an answer to to anyone who asks us in season or out of season. The confrontation continues, though it looks differently. Let us be aware that it is not a playground we live in, but a battleground in which we live in. We are not fighting for victory, we are fighting from victory. We have already won. The Lord will return and claim that which He has purchased. But as we go day by day, understand that there are those who are under the the weight of the wicked one. Their eyes are darkened. Their hearts are darkened. We need to pray and to give answers to them that they may come to saving faith in Jesus Christ.